Hello and welcome back to the LIBF podcast, where we talk all about the latest news, updates and events happening in the financial services around the world. On this week's podcast, we return to our sustainable finance series with the CSFI, focusing on corporate governance and the pensions industry, and the ways in which the environmental issues are shaping the financial sector today and for the future. Enjoy. This is, I think, the third in a the series on sustainable finance that the CSFI is doing with uh, London Institute of Banking and Finance. It's obviously a really hot subject and we're delighted to be doing it and thank you for, to LIBF for um, hosting it. Um, so we, we've got um, an excellent panel, um, Alan Pickering, who I first came across, oh my God, decades ago. You're one of the reasons I got really interested in savings and investment, actually, through your report on the subject. Um, But uh, uh, Alan um, heads best trustees, and uh, what what he doesn't know about pensions isn't worth knowing. Um, So he's going to go first and set the scene. Um, Then we're going to have Stuart O'Brien, who's a a partner at Sackers, um, because actually there's been um, some... Uh, quite a lot of regulatory and legal development um, in the field of pensions and corporate governance um, um, quite quite recently. It's certainly being implemented now and over the next year or two. So he's going to help help us get through that minefield. Um, And uh, actually, like Alan, has worked with the PLSA, which is probably the main body representing uh, pension funds. It was the NAPF, now the Pensions and Lifetime Savings System. Association, and then we've got Yanis uh, um, Yanu um, from London Business School, which has a really excellent uh, corporate governance um, department. Uh, and it's not just a corporate governance department; it's really into the sort of um, into in investment and corporate behaviour in, in a sort of nitty gritty way, rather than just oh, wouldn't it be nice if they all behave better? So uh, I'm very much looking forward to hearing what they've got to say. Um, so the, uh, I think this is being recorded, so it's not, not the Chatham House rule. So just in case you're used to CSFI events, um, it isn't the Chatham House rule. Um, and um, when any of you um, has a question or a comment, can you identify yourself? And can you shout, please? Because otherwise, um, maybe even we won't be able to hear, but certainly uh, other people in the audience won't be able to hear. Um, okay, so... Um, we'll we'll get going. Um, uh, actually, I will, I'll tell you what. I'll just read out to you first of all just what Norma said in her frustration at not being able to come. She said, "My main concern is the absence of a clear-cut definition of what ESG investment is. It appears to vary widely, and without uniform standards, fund managers can pick and choose among benchmarks that make them look attractive." My second concern is the lack of clarity of purpose. Um, why do we want to encourage ESG investment? Is it because we want to attract a new pool of capital which can then be invested in new technologies um, that will be employed to make human consumption of goods um, more environmentally sustainable? Um, at brackets, the EU believes that capital from government will not be sufficient. And of course, the 27 member states mostly can't afford to do much anyway because they're heavily indebted. Um, Or is it because those of us who provide the capital want to prod the businesses in which we invest to reduce their carbon footprint uh, and conduct their affairs in an ecologically sustainable way? So that's just just to sort of uh, some of the issues that I'm sure we will be coming back to. So 
Alan, would you like to mm. kick off? Yeah. <clears throat> Welcome to this pantomime <laughs> season. Every pantomime needs a warm-up man, <laughs> I am it. And I'm under strict instructions that if I speak for more than ten minutes, I will turn into a pumpkin. So uh, <laughs> I wouldn't wish that on anyone, and ten minutes of me is, is more than enough. I'm here tonight as a professional trustee, so in many ways... I'm the middleman between those who have good ideas and those who have the money that might back those good ideas. And if anybody was a patient capitalist, then it, it should be a pension fund trustee since um, we deal in decades like everybody else deals in hours and minutes. But I've always been somewhat sceptical of... Um, proclamations from on high or proclamations from politicians who see these large pools of patient capital. And although it is money that belongs to the public, it isn't public money. And yet politicians at all points on the spectrum from, I guess, Anthony Wedgwood Ben at one end to Nigel Lawson at the other. There's probably outliers that uh, go way beyond them as well. But people right across that spectrum have always said pension schemes don't need the money for a long time. We, as champions of the public, need that money. What they're really saying is that there are ideas that they have that the market won't finance. Now, that may mean that the market's wrong, or it may mean that they are wrong. So I've always been somewhat sceptical of people on high saying what trustees should do with other people's money. And in my case, I'm a trustee of some defined benefit schemes where the shareholder is on the hook. <clears throat> if there isn't enough money in the scheme and for as long as the scheme and for as long as the employer exists, then the, the shareholders are dependent on what I do or what we do with their money. I'm also a trustee of defined contribution schemes where the risk lies I'm going to say fairly and squarely, the risk lies squarely and probably unfairly on the scheme member. Do I behave differently in the context of defined benefit schemes where it's the, the big shareholder who's at risk? And those shareholders might be pension scheme members themselves. Or do I, do I behave differently when there's nobody between me and the customer in terms of returns or lack of returns? I've always taken the view that in many ways the starting point is if it's legal it's investable particularly when ethics were the driving force people wanted socially responsible <coughs> investment or ethical investments and I was saying to, to Jane outside that her ethics are different to my ethics, and she said, I didn't know you had any ethics, <laughs> Alan. So that was rather squidgy when politicians were encouraging us to, to behave ethically with other people's money. They wanted us to behave ethically so long as it met certain political 
objectives. And over the years, there have been conflicting opinions from lawyers. A very famous case 30 or 40 years ago when the National Union of Mine Workers were objecting to miners' pension funds being invested in industries that were competing with coal. I guess people could have argued that that would be ideal diversification, investing in industries other than the one on which you depended for your wages. But rightly or wrongly, the judgment that emerged from that particular spat really focused attention on financial returns being, I'm going to say the trump card, but I won't say that. Uh, I'll put a pound in the swear box. But the financial returns uh, dwarfed all other considerations. There have of late been quite um, eminent suggestions from parts of the legal fraternity and some legal institutions saying, no, no, it is possible to take account of... uh, non-financial or long-term financial needs. As we, as we move into an era <coughs> where uh, we're talking about ESG rather than ethics, I feel much more comfortable. Uh, Norma, in her creed occur, said that ESG lacks a definition. I don't want definitions. I quite like the idea of having a a set of principles within which we we all operate. In the pension fund world, we are littered with legislation and regulations, but they are all backward-looking. We have legislation and regulations that are the response to yesterday's problem, and they then go and cause tomorrow's problem. We are making policy through the rear view mirror rather than through the windscreen. And it'd be really sad if we end up with the same prescriptive approach to investment based on improved corporate governance with ESG at its heart. The real danger is that the more prescriptive you become, we use all our brain power in making sure that we comply with the minutiae of the prescriptive regulation, almost to the exclusion of the purpose for which those regulations were introduced. We had a very good idea a couple of years ago where pension scheme trustee chairman had to write a chairman's report so that you you could look at what you were doing through the lens of the beneficiary. That chairman's report became so prescriptive, so strewn with detailed minutiae that no chairman would go anywhere near it. They'd just say to someone from Sackers, write me a chairman's report, please, and just make sure that you dot every I and cross every T so that I don't get fined. That really seems to me to torpedo the whole aim of what was a good idea. And I hope that as we move into a world where ESG is seen by people across the political spectrum and to some extent across the academic spectrum as being a good way of helping people who are in pension schemes secure 
a secure old age and at the same time provide the seed corn which society needs. All I know about the people who join the pension schemes that I'm a trustee of is that they are hopefully putting money into a pension scheme to generate an income in retirement. Not many of them are investing to make the world a better place. Not all of them are investing to get tax advantages because there are lots of other savings opportunities, some of which have tax advantages and some of which do an awful lot of good, even if doing good comes at a cost. All I know about the people who put their money in my trust and trust me to do a good job is that they are joining a pension scheme. And pension schemes can't do everything. Our main aim is to provide security in later life for people who want to reduce (coughs) their workload or indeed to hang up their boots completely. And I hope that we can all travel on this journey together and that there won't be ESG funds and non-ESG funds. At the moment there are ethical funds and sin funds and there are green funds and not so green funds and is the manufacture of a wind turbine green or not? You obviously spend a lot of energy producing turbines. I don't really want to get into definitional disputes about what is ESG and what isn't. I just hope that everybody who invests other people's money will take the governance responsibility seriously to make sure that the companies in which they invest, first of all, understand the risks that they are taking and make sure that those risks are properly (coughs) priced. And then make sure that those companies can hopefully produce long-term returns that meet the needs of their employees, those people who invest in those companies, and the wider society. So I think that the G is, in a way, the most important letter in the uh, three-letter acronym of ESG. And from the getting the G right, hopefully the uh, other two letters will, will fall into place. And, and I hope that ESG will be at the heart of all investments. And say there won't be ESG funds and non-ESG funds because shareholders will acknowledge that those who invest in their share, shares have a responsibility <coughs> as well as an interest to make sure that companies are well well run. And it's quite heartening to see that shareholder value was never the be-all and end-all that many people argue. If you look at the company's legislation in the UK, directors have responsibilities to people other than shareholders. So you're not really at the the cutting edge of the alternative economic revolution to acknowledge that people other than shareholders have a legitimate interest. I hope that people like you, people like me, will make sure that whatever form of investment we're involved in, that those who uh, manage that money 
don't abuse the asymmetry of knowledge that they have vis-a-vis their customer. Nothing wrong with an asymmetry of knowledge. You have your speciality. Plumbers and electricians have their speciality. They shouldn't take you to the cleaners and you shouldn't take them to the cleaners when investing their money. So there will always be an asymmetry of knowledge between those who understand finance and those who benefit from that understanding. I think it's in all our interests to manage that asymmetry of knowledge in a responsible fashion. My second plea is that, uh, in a way, we we turn a deaf ear to good people like Norma who want everything to be tabulated, everything to be capable of of definition, because therein lies the root of honouring the law but ignoring the principles that those laws are intended to develop. And the last thing, I hope, is that we, we put politicians... Back in their box. (laughs) Politicians shouldn't say, it's your public duty to uh, finance my pet project. There must be, again, an an adult commercial relationship between the public authorities and those who can Mm. finance what those public authorities want, want to do. I feel a pumpkin moment approaching. (laughs) So I will do what all speakers should do when they've said more than enough, which is to uh, shut up and sit down. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you very much, Alan. (laughs) Oh, I said. Um, Well, I don't want to do questions in a minute, but I just wanted to run past you something um, I was reading today about... uh, So so, um, in in one of the PLSA documents. So Railpen has, in its approach partly um, echoes what you've been saying and that um, improve investment returns, well, you know, that might would fall out of the better governance that you were talking about. Reduce investment risk, yes, uh, you, you know, you refer to specifically. Rail, you know, enhance Railpen's reputation as a responsible investor. But the fourth one's interesting because this goes... Um, and being in line with um, the sort of future... Um, that our members um, will retire into, sorry, the future world that our members will retire into. Is that getting a bit too grandiose, or is that part of it? Uh, it, Nearly, nearly, nearly too far. And it's better than saying invest in line with how our members want you to invest, because one of the... Uh, hobby horses at the moment is that you are supposed to um, ask your members what their views are on certain issues. If you ask them what their views are, you're almost duty-bound to do something about it. And <laughs> Do I want to do something? And, and it may well be that you get 100% alignment from a very tiny proportion of the members. So if you've got and the people's pension that I'm a trustee of is about 5 million members. If 400 of those members think very strongly about something, do their, their strong views dwarf the needs and requirements of the other 4.5 million or whatever is the balance between 400 and um, 5 million? But 
yes, to try and make society a better place is is an objective, but I wouldn't necessarily put it on a, a par with all the others because what does better mean, better to you, means different to better to me. I am a, a big fan of intergenerational fairness and Jane mentioned the report that I once wrote for government and at the heart of that was the suggestion that a particular cohort had built a pensions fortress and had then lifted the drawbridge because it was too expensive for the next generation to enjoy the level of pensions that the former generation was en- enjoying. As pensions had been converted into from a best endeavour to a guarantee and politicians never realised what that there was a cost associated with that that conversion. So I've always been very conscious from the work that I do within pensions that um, for the first time in many generations, today's people who are building up pension are not going to get anything like the quality of output that their forefathers uh, enjoyed. And I've also been a big advocate of increasing state pension age always believed that the state is the best provider of a guarantee against absolute poverty in old age as long as politicians have the right to redefine get into Norma's books now to redefine what's meant by absolute poverty and what's meant by old age so you are preaching to the converted when you urge me to take account of intergenerational fairness. And, and, and yes, and we can't plunder the planet so long in the knowledge that we, the, the planet will outlive us, but it probably won't outlive our children. That is the height of irresponsibility. Okay, I think we'll, we'll, um, we'll move on to Stuart because um, there's already been some references to the changes in laws and regulations. Um, so would you care to take us through that maze and say anything else you wish to say about this uh, subject? How long have you got? Um, you have about ten minutes, and, or you will turn into a pumpkin. Um, so the, there's been a lot of change in regulation, uh, which I will go through in a moment, but if I could start by just picking up on some of the things mm. Alan said, oh, which are actually much, you know, much more interesting. The regulations, and I will take you on a journey through the regulations that we've just had, those that are coming up next year, and future regulation coming through from, from Europe and elsewhere. So I will go through that in a moment. But most of the regulation doesn't fundamentally change the job of the trustee. The job of a pension trustee remains essentially the same. We come back to this concept of the fiduciary duty. And nothing in any of the regulations changes the fiduciary duty. This is a a sort of a a bit of a myth. And it's a myth promulgated not least by the DWP in their consultation on changes to the investment regulations that apply to pension schemes when they called that consultation clarifying uh, fiduciary duties uh, of, of pension trustees. It did the one thing that consultation and the consequent regulations didn't do is make any changes to fiduciary duties. All those regulations did is change the disclosure obligations of pension trustees. So what policies you have to publicly disclose. 
and I'll come on to that in a moment. But the fiduciary duty, it is worth not losing sight of that. Were you, were that, you involved in the Law Commission inquiry yes. into that? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So the Law Commission's original consultation, and then and then the DWP uh, made some changes to the regulations on the recommendations of the Law Commission. Um, so I'll come on to those in a moment. But the fiduciary duty is uh, has not changed as a result of the regulations. The fiduciary duty does date back to cases like Cowell and Scargill, which was the, the mine workers uh, uh, case that Alan's referred to. But even there, when you look at what that case said, it is possible to extrapolate some core principles from that case that remain completely unchanged. And I'm going to give you my view as to what the fiduciary duty is. Other views are available from other lawyers, but I'm going to say <laughs> mine is right. Uh, and it, it is something we have thought about quite a lot. The fiduciary duty is not maximising returns. If it was, how would trustees enter into buy-in and buy-out contracts which don't provide a return at all? They match liabilities. Um, the fiduciary duty is not to make the world a better place. Now, there are some elements you can kind of draw into the fiduciary duty that, that kind of touch on that, but that's not the role of the trustee. The fiduciary duty is not to act as your members wish you to. Um, I take a similar view to Alan's on the, the role that member views have to play in trustee investment decision-making. Trustees are there as the experts to make investment decisions on behalf of their, their membership not to do their members' bidding. So the fiduciary duty, if I can leave you with three things, the fiduciary duty of a trustee is to... Well, one, trustees are given powers under a trust deed and rules. This is boring stuff, but this is the principle of trust's law. Trustees have to administer the trust and the rules that govern the trust that they are given, which means they have to exercise their powers for their proper purposes. Now, trustees are given a power to invest the assets of the pension scheme, and they must do that for a proper purpose, which is the purpose of paying members' pensions. That's core element number one. Number two is trustees, when they make any decision, they have to, and this is, I love this, because it gets you out of any complicated advice that, that you have to give to trustees. Trustees have to consider all relevant factors when making a decision and no irrelevant factors. I love that. It's completely trite law. But it works very well because what is relevant to exercising an investment power may be about returns. It may be about risk mitigation. It may be about matching liabilities in a defined benefit scheme. In a defined contribution scheme, it's not shooting the lights out on returns right up to retirement date. You will Schemes will tend to have some form of uh, investment strategy that changes over time where there is more risk put on maybe at the start, although not all schemes put full risk investment risk on at the start A lot do it in, some do it in just the middle and then you wind down the investment risk as the member approaches retirement date so that's not <coughs> maximising returns and you could say it's maximising risk adjusted returns, but what it's doing is the trustees thinking about what is relevant to us delivering on our duty to pay members pensions and in the DC scheme, that is creating a pot of money that a member can retire on. Uh, and in the DB scheme, it is delivering on the promised level of defined benefit. So that might, might be about returns. It might be about liability-driven investment. It might be about uh, cash flow 
uh, matching. It might be about all sorts of things. But trustees have to exercise plans for a proper purpose and think about things that are relevant and put aside anything that's irrelevant. And I would say largely members' ethical views will tend to be irrelevant in many cases. And I am talking about pure ethical, moral viewpoints. Now, I think there is a slight distinction on member views, just while I'm on the subject. I, I don't dismiss member views as entirely irrelevant. I think if you're in a DC scheme, um, members have every right to expect to be offered a range of funds suitable to their requirements and wants. So I think it is a requirement for trustees to think about, in a DC scheme, think about the default fund that is in the best interests of what I believe my members require for retirement, and then to provide, for members that don't want that, to provide a range of other suitable funds, and that might include ethical funds, it might include funds that screen out particular industries or otherwise. But the final bit of the fiduciary duty, so I've talked about two things there, proper purpose and thinking about relevant factors and not irrelevant factors. And the Law Commission, just to touch on that, because this gets into the jargon, sort of extrapolated from relevant factors, they, talk, they, they rebadged that as financial, financially material factors as opposed to non-financial factors. But you might just think about that as another form of words for saying what is relevant to an investment decision and what is not relevant to an investment decision. So what's expanded here really is What's regarded as financially material. Indeed, yeah. And that's where this comes out. And I think that is the final thing I'm, I'm going to leave you with on fiduciary duty. The final element of fiduciary duty is trustees are supposed to act prudently. Um, trustees, uh, the, the test is slightly more, uh, more nuanced than that. But you can go back hundreds of years into case law to talk about the obligation on trustees, not just pension trustees, any trustee, to act uh, as a... A uh, prudent person would act when thinking about the... Uh, who feels a moral obligation, not just acting for their own affairs, but uh, thinking about a moral obligation to provide for others. Now, that is different, again, in a DB and a DC scheme. In a DB scheme, you are th trustees are very well versed in thinking about what's a prudent decision uh, in order to de deliver on promised benefits. <coughs> In a defined contribution scheme, you can think about prudence in terms of what is the right uh, return profile over a member's lifetime. But that concept yeah. of prudence is very, very important. But actually, I hate to get into definitions um, after what Alan said, but um, from scars on my back from the accounting world and prudence, um, actually, in this context, if prudence you know, means wisdom, but hey, you know, that's motherhood and apple pie. But the difficulty is when prudence means caution. And for long-term investing, that can just be the trustees covering their backs and not necessarily... In, you know, like this business of uh, um, under AE, Nest and others, being very cautious about going mostly into equities with, uh, in the early stage of savings because it's also transparent and it might frighten the horses... And it's an opt-in, opt-out. It's not a lock-in, like with a DB. So isn't there some problem? What do you mean by prudence? And is there some The nice thing about prudence is, um, and the reason I like to come back to prudence is, one, you have to apply a kind of modern, what's referred to as modern portfolio theory. So there is, some, there is such a thing as reckless prudence, where you kind of stick all the money under the mattress. Um, <laughs> the, the trustees are bound to 
In a DB scheme, they're bound to deliver on the promised benefit. So what is a prudent approach to delivering on the benefits that are promised? Now, that requires all sorts of things. It requires you to think about the covenant of your sponsor. It requires you to think about the funding levels of the scheme. It requires you to think about what interest inflation rate risk might do to your scheme. And now, as you say, prudence is an evolving concept. So I think now we're at a point where might also be prudent for trustees to think about what climate risk might do over the time horizon of their uh, their investments. So if you've got a DB scheme and you're planning to be here for the next 20, 30 years, uh, it is, I would say, part of the prudent requirements of a trustee to at least think about whether climate may have an impact on your sponsor or your portfolio or your funding levels. How you do that, enormously complicated. And the level to which you do that, obviously, you have to be proportionate and pragmatic. But the nice thing about prudence is it is a test for a decision-making process, not an outcome of a decision. So as long as trustees have followed a sensible process and come to a rational uh, decision, having taken account of all relevant factors, no irre- irrelevant factors, etc. <coughs> then you can't be called up because you made, in inverted commas, the wrong decision with the benefit of hindsight. And that's oh, quite a helpful... Let's hope that's true. Uh, I think that's quite a helpful thing. And there is case law that, that backs this up. And there is, it is a helpful position for trustees to test the decision-making that they are you know, in the circumstances in which they find themselves at the time delivering on the purpose of the pension scheme at the time. Um, prudence is quite nice when you sort of look into the historic uh, case law you you can see how it evolves there have been cases around fiduciary duty uh, you don't need to go back too far you go back to the 50s uh, and 60s and there were cases that found it was a breach of fiduciary duty to do such outrageous things as provide equal pay uh, to provide provide subsidised transport on buses for uh, old age pensioners all these things were found to be illegal as a breach of fiduciary duty not all that long ago so the idea that fiduciary duty and concepts of prudence kind of evolve over time I think is actually helpful so I see that as some flexibility in the law rather than uh, a problem area anyway I've probably said more than enough I just want you just to touch on the um, what you the the, um actual regulation so, so from the 1st of October there was these um, invest new investment regulations and then there's some more stuff kicking in next year and then 2021 and I think 2022 and that's even without I'm not quite sure when the T- task force for climate related financial disclosures when all that kicks in so could you just so take a quick, can, quick yep. canter through the I will and it, I will try and that. do it quickly because the regulation is the boring bit actually the fiduciary duty is the more interesting bit the regulation, as I say, is largely about what trustees have to disclose publicly. Now, trustees of pension schemes have to have statements of investment principles. And one of the criticisms the Law Commission had when they looked at this a few years ago is trustees had to disclose in their statements of investment principles the extent, if at all, to which the trustees thought about, i use the words carefully here, environmental, ethical and social factors. So you've got immediate conflation here. We've been talking about ethical as entirely distinct from ESG as a financial issue. And in the regulations, you've got a requirement to disclose the whole lot of some kind of amorphous blob. Um, so the Law Commission said that's incredibly unhelpful. And the DWP said, you're absolutely right, and launched a consultation. Uh, actually, the Law Commission, to be fair, had to say this twice. They had a first go at it, and the DWP said, we agree, consulted, didn't know what to do with the outcome and shelved it. And then the Law Commission had another go a few years later and said, that thing we recommended you change in the regs, you still need to do that. So the DWP a few years ago did consultation on this, and that has led to the requirement 
from October this year, so October just gone, the trustees have to disclose their uh, policy on the extent to which they take what are termed financial, financially material factors, which are then subdefined to include uh, ESG factors. So essentially, disclose what your policy is on ESG. And I'm sorry to say, but I think there's been quite a lot of box ticking on this for this year. Um, the one concern I have, and similar to, to Alan's, I think, you can regulate a lot of this stuff, but unless you regulate in a way that actually looks at fundamental trustee behaviours, you just end up with a lot of words that people feel bound to say something good about. Um, so there's a lot of uh, um, aspirational wording in statements of investment principles about how trustees expect their investment managers to take ESG factors into account. Uh, and I'm not sure there's that much action being taken. Let's roll forward to next year. So um, that's what schemes have had to do this year. What schemes have to do next year is put more stuff in their statement of investment principles. Again, by October. We like an October deadline. So 1st of October 2020, trustees have to put a whole load more stuff in their statements of investment principles. And this is to implement the shareholder rights directive. So the sorts of things that have to go in statements of investment principles next year are more granular details on trustees' stewardship and engagement activities. And then there's some things that get quite tricky, like trustees have to describe how they incentivise their investment managers... (coughs) Uh, to align their policies with the trustees' policies? Uh, And the short answer is they probably don't, and it's certainly not incentivised in any kind of remunerative sense. So I think we're going to have a bit of... This time next year, I think we're going to have a lot of awkwardly worded SIPs. uh, Sorry, SIPs is is an acronym for for, uh, Statement of Investment Principles. So I think there's going to be a lot of agonising about how to put this type of wording in statements of investment principles next year. And again, I slightly fear it's not going to be as helpful as it might be. The final two things to say on the regulatory timeline are, as if that's not enough, after October next year, and I use the word after October next year very carefully, trustees will also have to do what are termed implementation statements. Now, the timing of when you have to do your first implementation statement is fiendishly complicated or it's been made fiendishly complicated in the legislation. But essentially, it is the first annual report and accounts that a trustee prepares after October next year. They will have to have some wording in there that says how they have implemented some of these policies. Now, the requirements are different for DB and DC schemes. For DB schemes, trustees have to predominantly describe how they've implemented their voting engagement policies. But for DC schemes, the obligation goes much wider. And again, I fear we might be... Having going to have a repeat of the chair statements that, uh, that Alan talked about where trustees have to describe how they've implemented all of these fantastic policies which, to be honest, their investment consultants probably wrote for them and they cut and paste into their statements of investment principles and now you've got to come up with a good story about how you implemented them over the last year. So that's going to be interesting. But as I say, all of this is just disclosure. It doesn't cha- won't necessarily change underlying trustee behaviour. Unless trustees want to. And I think that's where this comes out. You can regulate disclosures, but unless those disclosures actually prompt trustees to change behaviours and decision-making processes and think more <coughs> deeply about whether the requirement to disclo- disclose a policy actually merits 
some proper thought about what that policy ought to be, we end up with regulation rather than action. We talked about, um, you mentioned TCFD as something that's also in the pipeline potentially. There is a final bit of legislation which everyone missed, um, which stems from the IORP2 directive, and this requires trustees to have risk management processes, and buried in that directive is a requirement that those risk management processes all must include consideration of climate risk. And that's quite tricky to do as an asset owner. Uh, There is a joint industry group at the moment working across the pensions regulator and the DWP uh, and Bayes uh, that is looking at a way in which guidance can be produced for pension trustees to help them comply with this obligation to think about climate risk and perhaps using TCFD as a framework for that for want of of anything else but there's still a long way to go on that Um, and you asked about (coughs) timing on that Um, the plan is that there might be some public consultation sort of sometime in spring next year on what that guidance might look like I've said more than enough on regulations but I will yeah (laughs) do you care to take a bit into the sort of Invest some of the investment um, performance issues, perhaps, and, and the com- corporate. Great, thank issue. you, Jane. Um, for full disclosure, I'm neither a finance nor a legal guy, not a lawyer guy. So uh, excuse me, excuse the lack of jargon, uh, but allow me uh, to to tell you the story of ESG from the way that. I see it. Um, uh, I'm, in, I'm in the strategy department at London Business School, not in the finance department. Now, um, I always like to go back to the basics. And before we even start talking about the weather and the how, but to understand what it is that we're talking about when we talk about ESG. Um, and for me, that means going back to the basic unit, which is corporates. Um, corporates are facing unprecedented pressures to become more accountable, to become more transparent, to act environmentally and socially in a responsible way. And we're going through a wave and through a period in which they lack the skill, the experience, and the expertise to respond to these issues. Now, as I often tell my MBA students, you know, we tend to frame things like AI and big data and other buzzwords as disruptions. ESG and these environmental and social pressures that some would like to call externalities that the government will eventually regulate if you trust the political system. Um, So these ESG pressures are the mother of all disruption. They're the mother of all disruption and and on their passage, right, there will be plenty of companies that will fail to respond to these issues, which means they will shut down. As with every wave, that, that we've looked at in, in, in past decades, whether it's technology... Shut down or, or be shut down? Do you mean they'll go bankrupt because they... They'll go bankrupt. That's what I meant. Yeah. Now, <clears throat> in response to these pressures, there's been a heterogeneity of action on behalf of companies. Some of them will just sit tight and say, I'm going to wait for the law to deal with this. I'll simply comply and I'll be fine. I don't need to become a climate change advocate. Some of them are going to do the low-hanging fruit, you know, eco-efficiency, easy systems that are not going to attract too much attention. And some of them, as I'm sure you know, decide to stick their head out and lead their industries and fight and truly believe in a better society in, in what they're doing and through their business and operations. Now, there is a heterogeneity in that. What do we know, though, about the impact of that decision on a company's ability to create value? 
is the integration of ESG um, value creating uh, or is it value destroying or is this the tree hugging story? Well, what the academic research would say is that when ESG is done right, in other words, when it's genuinely uh, integrated in the organization and done in a thoughtful way, meaning understanding the materiality of stakeholders in the context, translating that uh, those pressures of the material stakeholders into value-creating mechanisms at the level of the firm, then what we do know is that in the short run and in the long run, these are profoundly better managed companies and they deliver higher returns. Okay, that's, that's one thing. Now, remember, don't get me wrong, there's plenty, plenty of greenwashing to go around. I'm talking here about the companies that actually integrate and actually implement. Now, second thing to note, though, is that we are undergoing through a period of profound experimentation at the corporate level. Profound experimentation to understand what are these environmental pressures? Is it plastics? Is it carbon? Is it whatever it might be the next kind of wave of environmental issues? And don't, don't even touch upon the social issues, community issues, engagement, employee issues, and so on, which are getting massively more complex. So a, pro, a, a profound period of experimentation. So, and I'm highlighting that because often when we talk about integration of ESG, we kind of assume that you know we've settled everything else and we're just going to measure it and then decide whether we're going to integrate it or not. We're not there yet. The underlying practice is a moving target. The underlying strategy is a moving target. So one, when we discuss ESG data or ESG integration, we have to be acutely aware of what is happening on the ground before we go into the integration um, in, in any portfolio. Now, knowing that these are profoundly better managed companies and therefore more likely to be around in the long run, there's a second big question that academia has explored, which is if these are companies are performing, performing better, then where does that value come from? In other words, what are the mechanisms through which these companies become better or become more profitable? And there we know a number of mechanisms, and these are not opinions or wishful thinking, right? We can show, we can demonstrate that these companies may have more engaged employees, may have better corporate reputations, may enjoy better social license to operate. They are actually more innovative. They patent more. They have better patents and so on. So we know those mechanisms. And again, from an investment point of view, that is critical because when you're looking for ESG data, that ESG data has to reflect the underlying value-creating mechanisms. Otherwise, it's the box ticking that we were talking about earlier. But that data alone is not going to paint a full picture about these mechanisms. It's, it is through the stewardship and it's through the engagement with companies that you can really understand whether these environmental and social challenges are meeting the core of what a company is meant to do. And the third, of course, is that even if it's a profitable uh, strategy and even if we know the mechanisms through which it creates value, there's also the third big challenge that companies are struggling with, which is how do I go beyond the usual CEO crusade? How do I embed this into the organization structurally? How do I distinguish between an organization without a commitment to ESG versus one that has a commitment to ESG? And there we know, we, become, we, we started to uncover what those structural integration mechanisms are. And they pertain to the corporate governance, to the stakeholder engagement, to the transparency and accountability of the corporation, and the time horizon of the decision making. 
Now, there's a big gap, though, to say that because ESG integration at the corporate level makes for better companies, that means ESG integration at the fund level is going to make for better portfolios. There are issues. The quality and comparability of the ESG data, for instance. The fact that the underlying processes are actually moving targets. The proliferation of reporting standards, most of the, all of them, voluntary reporting standards, often enough with disagreements between them and disagreements between the data providers as well. Those are not, um, not easy issues to resolve. But if you compare, by the way, and I always have my MBA students to this comparison, how quickly we converged on financial accounting standards, which is about 80 to 100 years, right? If you compare the degree of convergence on ESG metrics compared to financial metrics of the past, we're going at speeds 8 to 10 times faster. The term ESG practically did not exist 10 years ago. Right? And now we're already talking about financial materiality. We're talking about double materiality. If these issues are important for, for the uh, investors as well as other stakeholders and so on. In other words, a sophistication that goes into these metrics. And for those of you who might not, familiar, not be familiar, we see an unprecedented investment in deep learning, artificial intelligence, and big data methods to make sense of the ESG data in a way that we did not do in the past. Because this complexity might actually be, or might, or not might, it is actually beyond just the investment professional. It's just too many issues, too many complexities. So is, this, is this partly a big data, data analysis, advanced technology? Without advanced. a doubt. Yeah. Without a doubt. Because, you know, it's, it's, it's about, uh, well, first of all, the volume of data that comes out of this, the fact that it's not standardized, which means you need smart algorithms to tell you, you know, when, when there are red flags in the data and so on. So, um, having that in mind, uh, there are many issues uh, going from um, outperformance at the level of the corporation to actually constructing funds, long-term or short-term, or a trading strategy that would actually generate value based on ESG. But also, I, 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 I totally understand why perhaps as a trustee or perhaps as, as, as a legal professional, one would be hugely uncomfortable because... There's a lot of confusion out there. There's a lot of reporting standards. There was a lot of disagreement and questions about what's going to become the dominant standard. How do we really measure this? Are we really measuring it the right way and so on? But as an academic, I would like to highlight that that's a race to the top. It's not a race to the bottom. We have so many standards because so many people care about it. We have so many information intermediaries entering this space because this data is fundamentally important. Is this a period in, so therefore, this is a period of, of, of race to the top until we eventually, and I'm confident we will, especially given what's happening at the European Union level, the taxonomy, the mandatory reporting standards. Hooray, and so on. it's taken an hour for all the <laughs> taxonomy. We'll get there. So. <laughs> well, okay, so. Would you like me to conclude? Is that yes. my pumpkin one? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I'll, I'll just leave it at that and then happy to oh, take any... No, well, no, no. Oh. It's interesting you're working up some big message for the pension fund trustees or... They are, well, or the, or okay. their fund well, managers or the... So, yeah, therefore, I think that... Um, the, the, the integration of, of ESG is not a fad, is not something that is temporary. I think it is particularly relevant for um, uh, trustees and pension funds be, because by definition they do have that long-term horizon. And I think uh, if I were to highlight one thing, one last thing, is that 
we need to become profoundly aware of the risks that already exist in our investment decisions that have not been priced in because some of these issues are also what we call socially constructed things like uh, me too uh, movement um, the uh, gender pay gap and so on those issues are socially constructed in the sense that they reflect changing social preferences so we might wouldn't might we definitely have embedded risks that I think ESG can reveal, even from a risk management point of view, let alone the opportunity. Thank, Thank you. Um, Alan, was there, is there anything you'd like to respond to from what you've heard from, from your co-panellists? No, I'm soaking it all up, but um, I'm, I'm much closer to Yanis than I thought I might have been. I'm not normally that close to academics because I'm not very academic, but... Um, I do like the idea that just because there are a number of tools out there that we don't assume that one tool is better than the other, and I like the analogy of a a race to the top. We're all trying to do things better. We might get to the top by a different route, but as long as we're all trying to do things better, then uh, job done. Right. Um, I take some questions. And do, as I say, do identify yourself and do speak loudly. Um, oh, great. Thank you very much. I feel very privileged. Thank you. <laughs> Picking up on Ianus, um point about corporate, this is where ESG can be demonstrated to work. Now think about the trustees. If they try to bring in ESG, actually the investments are subcontracted mostly to other people or many other people, uh, it's going to take a lot more than ESG within the trustee body itself uh, to get anything done without actually embedding ESG into the fund operators. And that sounds like something that will never ever happen satisfactorily. Um, Who would like to answer for the fund management profession? Um, I mean, I think that's a bit unfair. I think that some fund... In fact, some... I think... Some fund managers are making um, a bit of a virtue of this. So if you think about legal in general, uh, which is actually largely operates through passive funds, but it's really you know, gearing up to be an, what's called an active owner, so it can demonstrate that it's engaged, and also it's getting some, some of the data that Jan has talk, t- talked about directly from the companies rather than from the, the aggregators. So um, I think my fear is, is the marketing department yes. in the fund management industry. You see a nice little earner here. They think that they might be able to charge a bit more for something mm-hmm. which is ESG. Now, it's my job as a, as a buyer of what those people are offering to make sure that I'm not having the wall pulled over my eyes and that although they might not be perfect, that they are trying as hard as they can within the resources, human and financial, that they have to embed ESG into the way they they manage money. And I know it might be difficult to manage in a league table fashion the impact of what these people do, but I, I, I'm, I'm not a big fan of simplistic league tables because you end up with cheap but not necessarily value so and again I'm modest enough not to aim for perfection but we really have got to try and unite the buyers 
of fund management uh, services, such as me, with the providers of those fund management services and try, try and keep the procurement department out of it at the buying end and keep the marketing department out of it at the selling end and the world will automatically become a much better place if you exclude procurement departments and marketing departments but that's next week's topic <laughs> yeah i mean there's obviously an issue about resources if you just think you know black rocks i think invested in is it 10,000 companies the world over and they've boasted about the fact that they've multiplied their esg or particularly governance department to um, you know, okay. whether it's 70 people or 80 people. Um, so obviously that sort of doesn't compute if they're saying that they're going to engage. I suppose more interesting is if, if, you're, if you've got um, a holding in, in Shell, um, it, you know, it would not be logical any longer for an analyst covering Shell to say that they're not going to look at the E factor, would it? So, you know, I think that there is, there has been, must have been progress, in the, at least in the obvious sectors, towards integrating some of these factors. But would either of you like to comment on this? I mean, my sense of advising trustees as they've been including wording in statements investment principles is, as I said before, there's a slight temptation on trustees to say the right thing. I think there's a number of statements knocking around in statements of investment principles where trustees will say, we think ESG is financially relevant and we expect our managers to take it into account. It's very easy to make that as a statement. But I, I, I think you're right, it is in the implementation where this will either stand or fall. Um, maybe these implementation statements, as, as much as I fear they're going to be... Um, difficult to do and not necessarily uh, maybe a little bit box ticking maybe they will prompt trustees having made that statement of policy to follow through and ask themselves quite seriously well how did we expect our managers to take this into account and then maybe ask themselves the question about whether that was a sensible policy in the first place to apply to all managers and whether the trustees should have a more nuanced approach that says well actually we can't really expect our passive uh, pooled fund manager to do the same as our active uh, segregated equity manager. So maybe we need to think as trustees uh, more deeply about what policy we apply for our different different parts of our asset portfolio and how we follow through on that uh, with with the managers. But yeah, I, I'm, I, at the moment I think we're still in kind of writing warm-sounding words and maybe managers saying warm-sounding things and not necessarily yeah. joining them up. So, and something quick, because actually I yeah. can see hands shooting up all over the place, so I want to get to them. I, I think the, the, the asset management uh, industry, is, is, it, it is actually going through a profound change. And, and, and I'll tell you the following. When BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, all those guys come up and say, we do ESG, uh, we have to realise that th th we do have the social mechanisms to put them uh, to, to hold them accountable when they don't. For example, BlackRock and everyone talks about Larry Fink's letter and then suddenly, but there are NGOs that go and check, okay, show us your voting record, for instance, what did you do on climate change? And they did abysmally bad. It was the, the, the worst, right? But I, don't, I think that we do have those mechanisms to hold them accountable when they make those commitments. Plus, I don't think we should underestimate the, the, the power of the asset owners to dictate what they want from their asset managers. I mean, uh, for full disclosure, I'm actually advising asset managers in the Middle East because asset owners are demanding ESG in frontier markets, right? So I, when you witness that, you say, okay, fine. Yes, there's change in the asset management industry. 
Yeah. Um, a wise old colleague of mine once said that hypocrisy is the first step to reform. I was going to ask Stuart what, uh, what his perception is, because obviously that, or it would appear that there's going to be more uh, an increase in litigation again, or do you not I'm, think so much? I, mm, the litigation is a tricky one. It's very tempting to, and as a lawyer especially, it's very tempting to say, "Why? Well, let's have a good, let's thrash this out in the courts and have a good claim against trustees." Uh, I mean, so, as an analogy on the asset management side, it was actually quite hard to prove negligence against yeah. the asset manager. So the, the one that I do remember is Sainsbury's versus Mercury Asset Management way back when. So because the, there was inadequate supervision and too junior a colleague was put in charge of of that portfolio. But I, Without sort of... Because I, I could probably talk about litigation risk in, in too much detail. I've probably said too much on the regulatory updates. But the way I think about... Um, claims against trustees so you've got statutory breaches so if trustees don't disclose or report on what they're supposed to disclose or report on they can get fined now that's the preserve of the pensions regulator decide if they're going to do that I think that's a bit binary you just have to have the right formal words in the right document in the right place at the right time the fundamentals though of have the trustees made a bad or wrong investment decision and I am talking about when I, all this that stuff I said before perhaps I wasn't clear enough about fiduciary duty I'm talking about the fiduciary duty as it applies to the exercise of trustees investment decision making um, rather than kind of in a broader sense but the test for that as I say is you have to exercise powers for proper purpose you have to think about relevant facts and no irrelevant factors and you have to act prudently but all of that is a process you are testing whether the trustees followed a proper process and most trustees, when they make investment decisions, are pretty well advised. Um, and I think it's probably going to be quite hard to land a successful claim against trustees for making a wrong investment decision. Now, you might be able to land a claim against a trustee if they have not gone through the proper thought process about making an investment decision. But then you need some loss. And in a DB scheme, as long as the member gets their pension... The member doesn't suffer loss, so it's hard to see where the claim comes from. Maybe in a DC scheme, but then you've got quite a long tail to demonstrate that trustees made a bad decision and the DC member suffered loss. So legal claims, I, I don't see them as high likelihood yeah. necessarily. Right. Um, there have been quite a lot of suits filed in various jurisdictions. Can you update us on that? Yeah. So there's the one rumbling on in Australia, claim against the REST Super Fund. I don't know quite where that's got to at the moment. Interestingly, that started out as a disclosure case. A member said, you are not telling me enough about how you've invested in my default fund, how you've thought about climate risk in my default fund. The claim then moved on to say, well, now if you're telling me that's all you're doing, um, that's not enough. And I'm not sure quite where that Ooh. one's got to. There is a case. There was a case in the UK uh, brought before the Ombudsman uh, against the Shell Pension scheme trustees. Very recently, the ombudsman has given his uh, decision that the trustees uh, has not upheld the members' claim. Uh, you had your hand up, yes, and then yes, and then we'll go to Mick over there, and then the lady there. Seatel Chima, I sit on the BSI steering group, the British Standards Institute. It's going to set a new standard for responsible investment by March 2020. So it's going out for public consultation. I'm interested, after what Jane said and Stuart, in terms of what you're talking about, um, 
passive investment versus active investment. Do you think there is scope for passive fund managers to be totally sustainable? We're, we're setting two standards, a basic foundation level, responsible investment, and an advanced level for sustainable investment. I have my own view, but I'm interested in knowing what you think. Uh, the short answer is yes. I mean, you, you've got... Um, act, you can still have active asset allocation yes. ex- executed through passive funds. And you have a lot of passive funds now that allow you, if your asset allocation takes in any of these tilts or concerns, you have a lot of options in terms of passive funds that, based on indices. This is where, <clears throat> but you know, MSCI's version is not the same as Sustainalytics. This is where that gets a bit complicated. But the, sh- the short answer is yes. And then in addition, you've got, if you're a passive investor and you can't just quietly sell and go away, and you are, you know, you are concerned about what your investee companies are doing, which should come on this. Um, your only option is to um, engage with them in some way to try to change their behaviour. Um, but, so that, yes, but there's a long way between saying, yes, that's how it can be done, and rec- seeing it being d- done, you know, that's willy-nilly. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, because it's a responsibility that you don't want to... Uh, sort of excludes so much of the world, the passive world, when you're setting a standard. I totally agree. There's two important things. It's not just only about greenwashing, but there's number one is the um, engagement, so the active ownership, but that passive funds can definitely do. And number two, now following on from all the consultations in July of the EU, the benchmark construction, the methodology, there's the client transition benchmark. Oh, yeah, and, got lots of yeah, other well, number two, you can actually select the different stocks based on ESG tilts now. So passive well, funds that, that, are what, changing the world, yeah, or can. That's right. That's what you were talking about. Back to yeah. data analytics, would you like to... Just very quickly, it's, it's difficult to do that, though. That's why engagement, even when you choose on ESG data, is so, so important because there's disagreement across ESG data. There's disagreement about what's best practice within the industry. That's why you have SASB and trying to understand financial materiality across industries and so on. Uh, but I, the, 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 the idea is, as, as an investor, you have to understand how the company has embedded this into the strategy, into the business model, that no number alone can tell you. You have to engage. You have to understand how they're thinking about the value creation mechanisms. Yeah. Um, Mick McAdeer, um, sorry, we're, we're working um, our <laughs> microphone man very hard. <laughs> Thanks, Al. My name is Mick McAdeer from the Financial Inclusion Centre. Just to say we're, we're about to bring out a report very shortly looking at the evidence on how much money is actually going into environmental and sustainable and social impact investment. I mean, the the stuff around the G part of the ESG is a bit of a distraction, to be honest. You know, that's where a lot of the growth is, and that's just sort of reclassification of industrial industrial practices. But when it comes to the environmental part and the sustainability part, the evidence is not looking very good. I'm afraid, you know, this stuff has moved up the agenda. There's been a lot of hype, but the amount of money going into those sectors, into actual green activities in the real economy remains a fraction of the assets available in the UK financial system. Now, we also looked at the, um, the barriers to greater financing of the, the green economy and social impact ventures. And, of course, you know, people quite rightly make, uh, mention there's lack of consistent information, lack of disclosure, and so on. That might help. But can I put it mildly, it would be rather optimistic to rely on greater disclosure and transparency to drive behavioural change in this sector. So my question is really, uh, 
to the, to the panacea role for the Bank of England and the FCA in actually making real change in the financial system so that the system becomes more aligned to the needs of the real economy rather than just the financial system itself. That's quite a big jump from investable green uh, entities to... Alan, so I'll throw that one at yeah. you. Know, I mean, it, as I said earlier on, you can't expect pension funds to do everything. As a trustee, I am open to all sorts of ideas to invest the members' money in. But I've got to be careful that I aren't the advanced vanguard of someone's alternative uh, economy. The, 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 the vehicles have to be there and to some extent tried and tested before I can use other people's money to, to fuel those things. So, yes, I'm happy to invest, but I'm not necessarily going to be a, an innovator. Um. Lady there, and then come back to you. The white top, thank you. Um, name? Hi, I'm uh, Jade Rigby. I'm from Hogan Lovells. Um, I was just wondering, we had Joanna saying that um, we're developing ESG metrics eight to ten times faster than we did necessarily financial metrics before, but how do we kind of reconcile that with, as Alan was saying, you know, trustees are having to think in terms of decades at the speed that other... Um, that what you know other places have to deal with hours and minutes. I'm just wondering where you kind of see the balance being shared there for trustees going forward. I'm not. I'm trying to understand what is it that so, we should reconcile. So I, I'm just wondering in terms of sort of um, things are developing very quickly in the ESG field. I'm just wondering, do you expect things to be developing? Like, do you expect trustees to be de- developing as quickly going forward, or where do we kind of see? Uh, do we think that the law will potentially lead the way here, or will it have to be fundamental change on the trustee boards themselves? I, uh, well, the answer is all of the above. I think it's it's it's. it's I mean, as the, the the legal requirements we we're just discussing today show, is that the world is going in that direction in terms of uh, ESG disclosure requirements. And I do think there's going to be similarly. By the way, trustees board of directors is the same story. They will will have to. These issues are are getting high on the agenda, and and I do have a lot of doubts if both uh, you know um, the boards of directors or trustees have the necessary again knowledge, skill, and experience to make those decisions because. I mean, don't get me wrong, these are highly complex issues um, and fast evolving. So you need the experts to, to, to advise you on these things, anything from, from climate to environmental, to broader environmental and social issues. Um, and, and there will be uh, a, a story of replacement at the trustee level as well, as it should. Thank you, question. Uh, this gentleman here has been... Um, I, feel, I feel like supporting the idea for expert advice. Um, but actually, it's Nick Spencer. I just got a question directly to Stuart, a simple question in that, given the intent element of impact investors, is that an irrelevant matter as far as the trustees are concerned? And therefore, if they're investing in impact funds, should they be careful to actually focus on their documentation on the relevant financial matters that is based the decision and actually the intentionality of the impacts almost an inconvenience because they, they could get misaccused. So this is impact as in you've got to putting the purpose first and you might So ex- this is investing a, with a purpose to have a positive, you know, a deliberate yeah. intention positive outcome as well as receiving what's in a market equivalent um, financial return. Let's, let's um, call that okay, can you square that circle, uh, Stuart? 
Yes, thanks for the difficult question. Nick. Um, <laughs> it's a hospital party. Um, so uh, m- many people here who are the bridges spectrum of capital. Um, there is only so far along the bridges spectrum of capital that trustees can go. Trustees can, you know, coming back to the sorry, what's the bridges spectrum? Of- so bridges spectrum of capital sort of starts with um, pure financial only, not concerned about anything else, um, shoot the lights out, return on one end of the spectrum, and at the other end of the spectrum is philanthropy. Don't care <laughs> about any preservation of capital, don't care about return, just want to do good with Make a donation. Yeah. yeah. Somewhere in between that, there are gradations. Um, trustees can go so far along that, uh, but the point at which the trustees are putting... You know, are no longer exercising their investment power for the purpose of paying members' pensions, then they've gone too far. However, I think impact can play a role. If you're getting market rate risk and return, then of course that can be, you know, it's a legal investment asset that can be chosen. And there are plenty of good long-term impact investments, uh, infrastructure investments, that are exactly the sort of investments that pension trustees uh, might like and want to hold for financial reasons. So where there's a reconciliation of benefits the scheme and benefits society, great. There are points where you can go slightly beyond that, I think, if the trustees are looking holistically at their whole portfolio and saying we're actually quite exposed to climate risk under certain climate change scenarios and a way of tilting or mitigating the risk that we are exposed to by necessary exposure to fossil fuel companies as part of our passive indices uh, that we we hold, we can maybe mitigate against some of those climate scenario climate risk scenarios by making a positive allocation to something that will fare better under certain scenarios than than others. So I think there is a case to be made. I'm not sure it's been fully made yet to hold some positive impact where it forms part of a broader, sensible strategy for the pension scheme. And um, there's um, a really interesting development, uh, this idea of degree rating. So your portfolios now can be rated as to whether or not they're heading, they're in line with going to a two-degree plus world, a two-degree world, or a 1.5-degree world. So there's, you know... Uh, this is one of the many areas where it shows how fast it's moving. Uh, I want to. We have still have a couple of questions over there. So that gentleman, and then and then George. Thank you, uh, um, Daniel Brooksbank from uh, yeah. Responsible Investor. The, the the pensions minister recently, uh, writing in Responsible Investor, said uh, Guy Opperman that pension trustees are riding a wave of greenwash from the asset managers. That's a really interesting situation. What can trustees do about it? And, and even our trustees capable of dealing with this? Are they the right people that we're lumping all of this, these responsibility onto? To, uh, you know, that's really the point, really. It's not really so yeah, much the, a question, yeah, but vol- a point. Volunteers, I would just, uh, except that they have people like Alan helping them. Yeah, I, <clears throat> I keep saying, trustees can't do everything. There are high net worth individuals, all sorts of people <clears throat> who have assets to deploy over various timescales with varying degrees of um, risk tolerance. It's just so easy for politicians to point at pension funds and pension fund trustees and say, there's a problem, sort it. But I think it is for trustees to make sure that that they don't miss a trick and do try and find good quality 
advisors who will help them sort out fad from lasting opportunity and you'll win some and you'll lose some but I think I've been lectured to by so many pension ministers who over the last 30 years and I've outlived most of them. I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, George Graham. I'll just come back on that one, if I may, since Guy Opperman is possibly one of the more superficial thinkers on this subject that I've had to engage with. Oh, my goodness, that's a low bar as well. I thought, I thought it was quite nice. Yanis <laughs> uh, touched on the externalities uh, question that governments will eventually regulate. Should, price. should. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the risk thesis around uh, integration of ESG factors into fiduciary's considerations hinges on what the PRI calls the inevitable policy response. Um, and I guess this goes back to the same point. Is there any reason that any government has shown us why we should actually think that policy response is indeed inevitable? It should be. So are you thinking about taxes, bannings and fines, the sort of, uh, which should really ratchet up the regulatory risk and the... Yeah. Put the risk into the assets yeah. and you'll sell it like a shop. Mm. Yes. Yeah, may I answer very quickly? Yeah, absolutely. I think, to, to connect back to the, the previous question as well, I think that reflects a fundamental lack of societal re- leadership on these issues. And I think uh, we are stuck in what I call the muddy middle because um, to, to see climate change, there's two ways to deal with it. Either you treat it as a threat and you drop whatever you're doing and you deal with it with radical action and with radical laws and regulations, which we are not doing. Or you see it as an investment opportunity, as a growth opportunity, and you invest a lot in it. What ha- are we doing that? We're not doing that either. Because look at the financing gap of the Sustainable Development Goals. We're talking about trillions of dollars financing gap annually. So we're looking at these issues neither as a threat nor as an opportunity. Despite all the developments we see in the, in the ESGSRI wor- world, the, the world is still moving in their own direction and we're still increasing our carbon emissions. So I think... You know, we're past the point of talking about incremental changes. We have to go into the space of radical changes if we we want to be around as a species. Uh, Just very quick last question here. (coughs) Yes, Alan Nichols uh, retired, um, and a pensioner, of course. But um, my question is: Do you think the the the, uh, principles of ESG should be applied? bearing in mind what's happening on Thursday to our politicians, and if so, how would you regulate them? <laughs> what, a ban on hot air or something? Yeah. Um, <laughs> or lying. Um, <laughs> but... <laughs> we're right, we're going to have politicians then. <laughs> who wants to take that one first? I would love to. Yeah, go, go. go. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, in, in, in my opinion, I think that, uh, I mean, it's a very philosophical issue about what is democracy, but I do think, in my experience at least, the political system across the world today is one of the major, if not the major, impediment to getting us uh, solidly on a sustainable 
path. There is uh, fraud, corruption, vested interest, lying, propaganda, and so on. Um, and as I often, uh, again, tell my students, you vote for a company every day with your wallet, but you, you do vote five, every five years for a government. That's why I, I do strongly believe, maybe it's by profession, that the world of business, right, in, in this reformed way, if you want to phrase it that way, is, is the best chance that we have. I don't, I'm not convinced it will be successful, but I've, I've given up on politicians. So. Right, thank you. Um, I just want to uh, allow our panel to round up. Um, so we'll, and we'll go from, from left to right. And um, we always say, you know, c can you look ahead three or five years? I suppose, um, actually, it sounds as though we, we, there's quite a lot happening in the next uh, one or two years. But I suppose, um, yeah, if what do you... Th I suppose you could either give a message to, to, to pension funds on how they should, could get more involved in influencing companies or message to politicians or whoever else you think or to the investee companies in terms of what's going to move the needle here. Would you like to start, Stuart? I, I should refrain from giving messages to politicians um, to keep it clean. Um, <laughs> message for trustees. Oh, actually, no, message for, message for those who commentate on the behaviours of trustees. We've heard a lot about, and I even I've said, trustees should do this and fiduciary duties. Yeah. have to remember, trustees are, generally speaking, non-exec. Trustees are there to oversee... Um, and make strategic investment decisions, but they're not there picking stocks. They, the trustee's job is to have conviction in the people they appoint to advise them and the people they appoint to manage uh, the, the scheme's assets. So, yes, all this kind of extra regulation on trustees may move the dial, it might move the needle a bit, because if you require, if you require trustees to disclose policies... It's a good prompt for trustees to think about what those policies are. But we mustn't lose sight that the fact that those policies are only going to be implemented with advice. So the finger, often, I'm afraid, in these cases often points to the investment consultants to step up on this, step up in their research capabilities in terms of ESG credentials of investment managers um, and the like, um, and to advise their trustee clients accordingly. Um, and it's going to require trustees to um, ask more searching questions of their managers about things like voting records and things like that. But, yeah, the, the, the buck sort of stops with the trustees, but we mustn't forget that trustees can only do so much in a quarterly meeting cycle where they are non-experts and they, are, they do rely on advice and they do rely on, on managers. Um, Ellis. So the very quick message is that uh, ESG is very important. Capital markets, compared to other social actors, uh, are actually leading on this. But uh, I don't think this is an issue that can be easily compartmentalized into three letters. Uh, we should always go back to the basics and the underlying issues, issues of income inequality, social cohesion, the collapse of the environmental sphere, and so on. So I think that in that respect, each and every one of us has a responsibility to deliver a better world, at at least that's my uh, moral kind of uh, my own moral imperative, um, and and if we really want to act, we are consumers, we are investors, we are employees, and we are influencers. And I think the big task, as I was uh, answering earlier, is for each and every one, and through the organisations that we can influence, to really frame this 
um, challenge, both as a threat and as an opportunity, because framing it as a threat will kick us into action, and an opportunity is going to and, and it's going to highlight the growth potential. Uh, but I do believe in individual responsibility and, and, and individual influence to everything that we do if we're going to have a chance to um, to survive this. And um, Alan, you have yeah. the last word. <clears throat> Just two two quick points. I mean, scale isn't everything, but as you look forward for the next five or ten years there is going to be increased scale within the pension fund sector defined benefit schemes will be consolidating either within the pension space or within the insurance space defined contribution schemes will be consolidating as employers no longer want single employer defined contribution schemes, there's 30-odd master trusts out there that will reduce from 30-odd to 20-odd, but there will be scale. And, and with scale comes the ability to respond to Mick McAteer in doing things that are along the, expect, the acceptable part of Stuart's spectrum. But for a small scheme, talking about putting money in innovative areas. The money that you can put is so small that it fails as so what test. With scale, more schemes will pass the so what test in embracing new and hopefully positive developments. My other plea is, again, aimed at, at politicians. Politicians have lost their bottle. Politicians should really be opining on how big should the state pension be and how old should you be to qualify for that state pension. It's much easier for them to get involved in the weeds, in the minutiae and become so prescriptive that they must go home at night thinking, did I really go into politics to talk about GMP equalisation or some other esoteric topic which won't move the dial so we should all play our part in encouraging better quality people to become politicians people who want to be involved in big decisions and not micromanaging because they haven't got the bottle to make big decisions right well that's a, num a number of gauntlets thrown down so um, I'd like to thank you all for coming and asking excellent questions um, and I'd like to thank uh, the wonderful panel Stuart, Yanis and Alan and thank you very much Thank you for listening. If you'd like to listen to more of these episodes, always consider subscribing on your chosen podcast platform. And if you'd like to attend one of these events, much like this one, then go to our website to find out more. All the links to further information are in the description.